Well, good morning. It is so good to see all of you this morning. Merry Christmas. I hope that your weekend has been really enjoyable. Anybody have a chance to go out and do something festive over the course of the weekend, of the last couple days, maybe? A couple of you? What are the rest of you doing? Like, it's Christmas time. Well, over the course of the last couple days, it's been pretty festive around our house and around uh, the community that we're a part of. Yesterday, my wife, Monica, and our daughter, Ella, went with some friends and some family to go see the Nutcracker. One of our youth from the church here was performing, so they went to see that. And while that was going on, my son Emerson and I, we worked on this Christmas train set that we put up. This train is something that's been passed down in my family for several generations. Emerson's the fourth generation uh, to kind of experience this and work on it. It's kind of been passed down through the sons. And uh, so we spent the day working with tools and putting things together. It was really manly and wonderful and fun and uh, the ladies went to the ballet and had a great time. All around, just good, good stuff. I love Christmas. Some of you might not know that about me. Most of you do. I love Christmas. It's my, it's my favorite time of the year. There's no question about that. I think Christmas is uh, just the most wonderful time of the year. And I hope that for you, as we've been going through this sermon series, Joy to the World, that you have been experiencing that joy, the joy that comes only from the Lord, because it is truly, truly incredible. Isaac Watts, he, if you don't know, is the author of the song Joy to the World, and he's left this indelible mark on us, hasn't he, with that Christmas carol. The words that he has written are so, so beautiful. And while that song may not have been written initially as a Christmas carol, there is no doubt about the fact that it is in the catalog of all-time favorite Christmas carols. Now, I start listening to Christmas music earlier than some, Probably later than others. I mean, there are probably a few of you that listen before Halloween. I start like the day after Halloween. So some of you may be listening a little bit earlier. I don't know if I should tell you this or not. We have four Christmas trees in our house. Um, there's like the main tree, right, which is great. But then in all the bedrooms, there's a Christmas tree. They vary in size and shape and whatnot. But we have four Christmas trees in our homes. I love when Costco has their Christmas decorations, like in July, you can get a swimsuit and some ornaments. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. The traditions, the cookies, the trains, all of the things, it's wonderful. I am an early engager in the trappings of Christmas, and I will tell you, I make no apologies for that. Now, growing up, that was not, not necessarily the case. We were a strictly after Thanksgiving sort of family, as I imagine most of you are. So we would get our Christmas tree the day after Thanksgiving. We'd go and cut it down and start decorating. I remember on the way home from Thanksgiving, I think we could start listening to Christmas music at that point, right? They'd start playing it, and so on the way home, it's like, okay, it's, it's sanctioned now. We can listen to Christmas music. Um, but I think over the course of the last few years, I have noticed more and more people who are coming around to my side. I think I've seen on social media and conversations more and more people who are at least open to the idea of listening to Christmas music a little bit earlier, of starting to decorate, of all of these sorts of things that are kind of fun and wonderful, and, and I say amen to that, because Christmas is truly a great time of the year. A couple weeks ago on our podcast, The Pulse, I shared my theory on why I think that's true. Now, if you've listened to it, this is going to be not, this won't be news to you, but for those of you that haven't heard that episode, here's my theory on why I think people have started maybe getting into the Christmas spirit a little bit earlier. 
My theory is that people have started doing this because it speaks to and reminds people about the joy and the hope and the peace and generosity that we so desperately long for in a world that seems to be coming apart at the seams. That's my theory. That we live in a world where you turn on the news and almost everything is just a downer. It's violence, it's division, it's sadness, it's sickness, all of these sorts of things. And I think people are looking for an excuse to engage in something joyful and happy, something generous. And while we shouldn't need an excuse for that, I think maybe it allows us the ability to do it because at Christmas time, that's what we do, right? We're, we're joyful and we give and we care for one another. And so my theory is that people have started maybe engaging in Christmas activities a little bit earlier for that reason, because we live in a world that seems so infested with hate and violence and greed, a, a world that is so uh, infested with thorns, so to speak. The last two weeks, we've explored the first two verses of Isaac Watts' Carol, Joy to the World. And today, we look at the third verse, this thorn-infested verse, if you will. In verse 3, he addresses this issue by saying this, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Sins and sorrow and thorn-infested ground are not the types of things that we typically like to think about at Christmas, are they? No one wants to think about sadness at Christmas time. We like our thoughts to be filled with Christmas parties and baked goods and family traditions and brown paper packages tied up with string, right? These are a few of our favorite things. But the reality is the world that we live in is a broken world even in the midst of the Christmas season. Sin and sorrow are, in fact, a significant part of our reality, and they have been since, essentially, the creation of the world. In Genesis 3, the chapter immediately following, after this beautiful, miraculous creation of man and woman, we see that Adam and Eve couldn't keep it together. There was one thing that they couldn't do, and they couldn't keep themselves from participating in that. And as a result, sin and sadness and sorrow, all of these things have come into our world and they are reality on a daily basis. We read about this introduction of sin into the world so early on in the counts of creation. In Genesis 3, 14 and 15, we see the curse that is placed on the serpent and even a foreshadowing of the battle that is to come. But in 16 through 19, we specifically see the curse that is bestowed upon woman and man. And so I invite you this morning to stand for the reading of God's word from Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The word of the Lord. If you are like me, when I find myself in a situation where I'm dealing with 
things like sin and sorrow, when I am feeling angry, when I feel like someone has wronged me, I don't necessarily initially go back to the garden. That's not my first thought. That's not where I go. That seems kind of too far back. I think about the immediate circumstances. When we think about sickness, when we think about war, when we watch the news, when we hear about people who are heartbroken, depression, broken relationships, fear, and loneliness, we don't go back to the origin of the sin and the sorrow that we encounter today. The thorns, if you will, of this life are a direct result of that initial sin in the garden. In Genesis 16, we see that in the midst of these really beautiful things like marriage and childbirth, there is going to be pain and anguish. Things that were intended to be joyful and wonderful now are far more difficult than God originally intended. In 16 through 19, there's this curse that God places over the ground, the ground from which he, he created life, a curse that will bring about thorns and thistles, toil in the midst of work. Here's the thing, work itself is a good thing. In Genesis 2.15, God talks about creating man for work, putting him in the garden for work. Work is not bad. But the toil and the stress and the anguish and the pain that comes from work is a direct result of the fall. And we see that while God will continue to provide, it will be far more challenging and far more painful than he originally intended. There will be suffering. And if this is where the story ended, what a sad, sad story our lives would be. What a heartbreaking ending it would be to this story. But as Watts points out in his carol, there is an arrival that puts an end to sin and sorrow. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes, he arrives to make his blessings flow. Now we know that the he that is being referenced is Jesus. As we've discussed over the last couple of weeks, Watts was speaking about the second coming of Christ, but it is through Christ's first arrival that we celebrate here at Christmas that the issues of sin and sorrow begin to be addressed. And not just for men and women that seemingly have it all together, because none of us do. But in particular, for those that most certainly do not have it all together. In 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, one of the most influential figures in the life of the church, the Apostle Paul speaks to this subject. For those of you that aren't familiar with Paul, Paul originally, his name was Saul, and he was a persecutor of Christians until he had this incredible encounter with God. And God changed his life in this radical way to where he changed his name, he, he disavowed the things that he was doing before, and he came to proclaim the gospel. That's a transformation. And so here Paul is towards the end of his life, and he's writing to a young pastor named Timothy, kind of an apprentice, if you will, and he's speaking to him, and he's giving him instructions on how to pastor and how to follow God. And in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, he writes this. I, give thank, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 
But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul starts out by expressing this incredible gratitude to God, and rightly so. Paul was a bad dude. He had done a lot of things that were not good, that were not pleasing in the sight of God. In verse 13, he lays these out, these charges, if you will, on the table. As a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, he says, these are the things that I have done. And truth be told, if you knew someone like that, you probably wouldn't want to be friends with them. If your daughter came home and said, Mom and Dad, I met this really great guy, Saul. He's very accomplished. And she started to rattle off the accomplishments that Saul had. You would not want your daughter marrying Saul. Saul was a bad guy. This is a picture of the terrible life that Paul had lived prior to his transformation. He wasn't someone that was doing what God wanted, even if he didn't realize it at the time. He was hurting others, and yet God showed him incredible mercy. In verse 14, we see that in spite of his heinous rapture, God abundantly poured out his grace on him with a faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul is painting this picture of Timothy to show just how profound God's love is. God's love is not just for those who are good. It's not for just those who are kind and caring. No, God's love reaches the most broken and troubled souls. Paul says in verse 15, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He's saying to Timothy, understand this, Tim. Jesus came into the world for the express purpose of bringing about reconciliation and restoration for, and salvation for sinners. And Timothy, I am the worst. I mean, look around. Who is worse than I am. Look at all the terrible things that I have done. Paul is telling Timothy that Christ came into the world to remove the thorns of sin and sorrow, even from people like himself. This is the work that began on the cross, and a work that will be completed when Christ returns, as Watts writes about in his beloved Carol. Paul continues in verse 16, but for this very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul points out that Christ, by showing him mercy, is demonstrating the profound nature of his saving grace, the degree to which he is willing to be merciful. He is showing that there is no person too sinful or broken or embattled in sorrow to be touched in a life-changing and transformative way. And in verse 17, Paul gives God praise not only for what he has done, but for who he is, the king eternal, immortal, invisible, and the only God. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. As far as Paul was concerned, he was on the outer limits of where the curse is found. He considered himself to be the worst sinner, the chief 
sinner, someone desperately in need of God's saving grace, and yet, in his opinion, the least deserving. Isaac Watts was a prolific hymn writer, and besides the carol Joy to the World, he wrote this song, he wrote this song When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, a song that powerfully speaks to Jesus' saving work. And in many ways, the third verse of this song helps to explain the third verse of Joy to the World. Watts writes, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Watts paints this picture of Christ on the cross, a picture of great agony and sorrow intertwined with love. He paints a picture of a love that ultimately would root out sin and sorrow, a love that would wear a crown of thorns in order to eradicate thorns, a love whose blood would flow and bless creation as far as the curse is found. Watts reminds us that it is because of a wondrous cross that we can even sing joy to the world. That during the season of anticipation and expectation, during the season of Advent, we wait with great hope, knowing that it is in Christ whose birth we celebrate, there is hope even for the worst sinner. And that when he returns, he will make all things new, and there will be no more sin, and there will be no more sorrow. The toil and anguish we face will be eliminated. There will be a new heaven, and there will be a new earth. The thorns will be removed, and we will experience life as God intended for it to be experienced in close union with himself. Sin and sorrow will be a thing of the past. This is the plan that God has put into motion. This is why God sent his son to earth. This is why it says in Philippians 2, 7 through 8, he took on the form of a servant, not a king, but a servant. He took on flesh and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And this is why he will come again. We are talking about this in our sermon series on Revelation. There's no doubt in my mind that there are people in this room who feel the profound weight of sin and sorrow. Even in the midst of this Christmas season, this time where we hope to experience happiness We hope to be celebratory. There are people in this room who feel so ensnared in thorns. They feel so dense and so surrounding that there appears to be absolutely no way out. But let me tell you this. While the ground you currently walk on may be infested with thorns, the child whose birthday we celebrate at Christmas grew up to wear a crown of thorns and mercifully pour out his blood far as the curse is so curses found so that there would be a way out. As the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, the blood of Christ was poured out for even the worst sinner. I love how in Nehemiah we're reminded of the fact that the joy of the Lord is our strength. What encouragement there is in knowing that. That joy isn't just an emotion, but it is a state of being. It's something that we can pursue and we can live into. And that when we talk about the joy of the Lord being our strength, the word used for strength means safety and refuge. And so in the Lord, there is peace and safety and rest. There is refuge from the things in our lives that bring about sorrow. This is not to say you won't face sorrow. This is not to say you won't have to deal with sin because we do currently live in a fallen and broken world. But we can live with hope 
and with joy, knowing that through Jesus, the one we celebrate here at Christmas, God has made a way through the sin and sorrow, and one day, far as the curse is found, he will make all things new. Joy to the world. If today you are someone who feels surrounded by the thorns of life and you are wanting prayer, we're going to have prayer partners up front here and they would love to pray with you today. And if you have never turned your life over to God, if you have never said, God, I need you to be in control, today's the day. Today's the day. Why wait? Jesus, the one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, came into the world to save sinners like you and like me from our sin and our sorrow. And when we experience the joy of the Lord, there is great strength to deal with whatever thorns we may face in this life until he comes again to eradicate them all. And so I invite you to pray with me this morning, just quietly in a moment here. Ask God to forgive your sins and to give you the strength that you need to follow him day in and day out. If you pray this prayer with me in just a moment, I can't encourage you strongly enough to let someone know. Let me know, let Pastor Pete know, let another staff member know, let the person next to you know, the person who you walk out to your car with after service, let them know because we want to celebrate with you because God is doing a new work in your life. Joy to the world. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we give you all the praise. And we recognize, Lord, that we are sinners. That there are things in our lives that we do that aren't, that aren't pleasing to you. And Lord, today we ask that you would take those things away, that you would forgive our sins. Lord, I pray today that we give control of our lives over to you. That you would be the king of our lives. That we would be able to say, Lord God, I give you control of all that I am. Today, Lord, I decide to follow you. I give up my sins. I lay down my sorrow, Lord, and I ask that you just take them away, that you would be my strength. Lord, I thank you so much for the work that you have started, and I thank you so much for the work that you will complete when your son comes again. What a joy it is, Lord, to serve and follow after you. You are a good, good father, and we love you, and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.